I'm Damian Bulwa. Today on Fifth and Mission, it's the last day of 2020. So what we're going to do is take a listen back at the year as we covered it on this show. We have some clips from episodes we did throughout this momentous, often terrible year. It was a year dominated by the coronavirus pandemic that changed so many of our lives and took so many people from us. There was also a presidential election and the stirrings of a national reckoning with racism. And as usual, wildfires burned throughout California. There was more than that, of course, but we only have so much time, so that's where we'll focus today. Let's start with the coronavirus, which made its first appearance on Fifth and Mission on February 5th, which now seems like a long time ago. Back then, one of the co-hosts of the show was Audrey Cooper. Global health leaders have declared a planet-wide emergency due to the coronavirus, which has sickened tens of thousands and killed hundreds of people in China. Joining me today to discuss the virus, how it is spreading, and what California is doing about it is health reporter Aaron Alday. So the thing with this coronavirus is really just that it's brand new. Um, It it only showed up, they only identified it maybe a month or two ago. Um, They don't know exactly when it came up, but probably it was late um, last year in China. And anytime you get a brand new virus that we've never seen before in human beings, the concern is we don't know what this thing is going to do. At first, we heard about people getting sick in China and in Italy with only a handful of cases in the Bay Area. But the Bay Area has close ties with China. And by February 10th, COVID-19's effects were being felt in San Francisco, even if the disease wasn't. Travel from China had shut down, and between that and false rumors about COVID-19 breakouts, businesses in Chinatown suffered badly. Reporter Anna Bauman talked about it on the show. I spoke with one um, merchant in Chinatown who owns two legacy businesses, um, and he was saying that... He's just seen less people, you know, out shopping, eating at restaurants, walking around in Chinatown. Um, And that unfortunately, one of his businesses, a bakery um, over on Stockton Street, really took a hit because there was a a rumor going around that um, there was some sort of coronavirus incident there, which was not true. Um, He held a press conference to shut down that that myth and um, has since seen the numbers come back. But all in all, it's just been sort of a a decline in in business. On February 21st, we got a preview of what was coming to the U.S. Otis and Carol Manasco are a Northern California couple who were on a cruise in Japan when a COVID-19 outbreak spread on the ship. Otis and Carol were quarantined on board for two weeks, then flown to the U.S. where they entered two more weeks of quarantine at Lackland Air Force Base in Texas. They talked to Fifth and Mission on the third day of that. We have never left our room other than going out on the little balcony that is in front of our door. Uh, and we have stayed away from contacting or even talking to any anybody else. Well, well, you both seem to be um, in relatively good spirits. I, I have to tell you, if it was me and my husband, we might be uh, ready to kill each other at this point. You've been you've been stuck in the same room with each other for a long time. I'm sure you're looking forward to um, seeing some other people at this point. Well, we are, and uh, part of our distraction even right now is we're watching them load more people into an ambulance and take them away. That's happening right now outside your window? Right now. We just watched them load up two more people, and we expect there's more because they've taken quite a, quite a few more pieces of luggage out. 
Wow, that's amazing. Uh, what what do the what do the people look like? Can you tell what they look like when they're getting into the ambulance, or just that they're being loaded into one? They're still upright and walking. They, they walk to the ambulance. The storm clouds gathered over the next few weeks, and on March 16th, the now famous lockdown orders came in the Bay Area. They would be the first in the country. Today, we have breaking news. Starting after midnight on Tuesday, March 16th, most of the Bay Area will be asked to shelter in place. The pandemic was so new and the idea of sheltering in place was so strange. What's happened in the nine months since then was still unfathomable. Listen to how Audrey Cooper and reporter Aaron Alday talk about it. What does it mean to shelter in place? Like, how how is it going to affect my life? So it basically means they're they're telling you do not go outside and be around others unless you need to buy food, health supplies, you need to go to the doctor. I mean, really need to go to the doctor, not for a regular appointment. Anything that you absolutely need, you should go out and get it. But short of that, they want you to stay inside and they want you to stay inside with only your housemates. All of this is designed for people to just keep as much social distance as possible. The shelter in place order is also lasting. I was shocked when I heard how long it was going to last. Why so long? It's it's going to be reevaluated or right now they're saying April 7th. Right. Yeah. So three weeks. And again, that's, you know, other places that have instituted somewhat similar measures are even, you know, they're only going for two weeks. Uh, you know, I think what they're saying is that we're not going to be out of the woods in two weeks. Um, we're maybe not going to be out of the woods in three weeks. Two weeks later, Chronicle reporters Matthias Gaffney and Joe Garofoli broke a huge story. It was the story of U.S. Navy Captain Brett Crozier, who's from Santa Rosa, and his aircraft carrier, the Theodore Roosevelt. Crozier made the highly unusual move of sending an email to his superiors pleading for resources to deal with the coronavirus outbreak on board the ship, which was then docked in Guam. Here's Matthias Gaffney. About two weeks after it left Vietnam, they got their first couple positive tests to COVID, and that aircraft carrier then was actually scheduled to stop in Guam. And it was as they pulled into Guam, the number was jumped to 25 and quickly to 36. And now it's at between 150 and 200, according to sources we have on the boat. How are they treating the the infected people right now on the ship? The infected people, for the most part, have been moved pierside. Um, according to the the captain whose letter we obtained, he says... They have kind of group quarantine happening out there, but only one of the places that they're able to do it is up to the standards of of um, care that uh, the Navy and CDC has recommended. So he's incredibly concerned um, uh, about those uh, what he's kind of faced with and how he can isolate people. And then when you talk about the people who have yet to test positive on the ship, I mean, that's a whole nother thing. He says there's just physically no way to separate yourself six feet from someone on a warship like this. After Crozier was relieved of his command by acting secretary of the Navy, Thomas Modley, a viral video showed crew members giving him a hero's send off as he left the ship. Crozier himself soon tested positive for the virus. A few days later, Modley delivered a speech to the crew. Reporters Gaffney and Garofoli got another scoop when they obtained a recording of that speech in which Modley hammered Crozier for sending his plea in an email. And immediately it was picked up by the San Francisco Chronicle, which published sensitive information about the material condition of a naval warship. 
if he didn't think it was my opinion that if he didn't think that information was to was going to get out into the public in this information age that we live in then he was a too naive or too stupid to be the commanding officer of a ship like this Modley apologized later in the day for calling Crozier stupid or naive and the next day he resigned as acting secretary of the navy one sailor on the Theodore Roosevelt died from COVID-19, and the outbreak was studied by epidemiologists who wanted to learn about virus spread and the effects of the disease on younger men and women. A Navy report condemned the actions of Crozier and some of his senior staff. He was disciplined and banned from ever commanding another vessel. As the early days and weeks of the pandemic turned into months, we talked to people about how they were handling it, especially frontline healthcare workers. It's very difficult for me to talk about how sick patients are with COVID. That's Twyla Nesser, a critical care nurse from San Ramon who volunteered to fly every other week to New York, which in the spring was the epicenter of the epidemic in the U.S. She was helping to replace nurses who had come down with the virus. Everyone is just so stretched so thin. You are having to triage care of your patients and not be the best nurse you can be because you have to triage just keeping them alive. Having to don and doff your PPE, mostly donning, um, is so deliberate. You have to think of every single move you make um, in order to protect yourself um, from COVID. I trust in my PPE. I know it works, but when you see a patient in a crisis, you can't just run in like you would normally do in order to help save them. You see their oxygen saturation drop into the 70s, and you have to take that three minutes to really don your PPE correctly. My hope is that we don't see what we see in the New York City vicinity here in California. When we come back, more voices from the pandemic, plus the election, the Black Lives Matter movement, and the California wildfires. We'll be right back after a short break. You can support Fifth in Mission and the newsroom that creates it by signing up for unlimited Chronicle access at sfchronicle.com slash pod. Just about everyone's lives have been changed by the coronavirus, even if we've been lucky enough to stay healthy. Our reporters and producers have spent the year talking to people about how the pandemic has affected them. Here's Aiden, a barista in the Mission District, trying to stay safe on the job. Well, I've got my big old buddy right here, my Clorox. Um, so I'm keeping it sanitized. So I'm wiping it down um, between every transaction. Um, I'm pouring milk for everybody, um, stirring their coffee and their sugar. It is kind of uh, scary because we have a lot of people um, from the hospital that come and, and, you know, they come to get their coffee during their breaks and stuff, but they're exposed to it. And so, you know, that's a, a greater risk. I am risking my health being here, but at the same time, you know, I need a roof over my head. We also heard from COVID-19 survivors. For a project called Surviving the Virus, reporters Peter Hartlob and Annie Weinstein asked people how having COVID had changed them. Here's 53-year-old Shelly Howell. She's a two-time virus survivor. In 2009, she spent five weeks in a coma during the H1N1 pandemic. My symptoms and ongoing battle have been nonlinear, with waves of ups and downs and cyclical phases. There are moments in which I felt they may never end. 
At one point, just when I thought my abdominal pain may have left the building, it returned after a five-day hiatus with a vengeance. On day 91, when I thought there could not possibly be any new symptoms coming my way, three new yes joined their fellow revelers. Most notably, a three-hour manic period took hold of my body, leaving me feeling like I'd taken a mass dose of steroids. 59-year-old Kevin Jones contracted the virus after he returned from Europe in March. He was intubated for three weeks and given a slim chance to live, but he came off the ventilator on Easter Sunday. His first words, what's up, bitches? I'm back. What have I learned mostly from COVID-19, I would have to say, is you can be as well healthy as a horse, if you will, but one little virus can take you down. And it took me down. It took me almost to the brink of death. This will pass, I'm sure, in a few years. Um, we'll go back to somewhat being normal, but I think it's a little different now for all of us in the entire world as to how we relate to each other, how we take care of each other, and how we love each other. So bottom line is, if you love someone, tell them every single day. Take it seriously, people. Shelter in place, use your masks, wash your hands, and love each other. There were, you might recall, stories other than the coronavirus this year. We had an election, a big one. Fifth Admission is usually a Monday through Friday show, but we had to swing into action on the Saturday after Election Day. That's when media outlets called Pennsylvania for Joe Biden, and that pushed him over the top. You're going to hear from Washington correspondent Tal Copeland. I'm Damian Bulwa, and this is an emergency joint episode of Fifth Admission, and it's all political. What you just heard was the sound of people celebrating in New York City, After the call went out that Joe Biden had won Pennsylvania, pushing him over 270 electoral votes and making him the president-elect. So what we were waiting for um, was a moment where the the presidency was Joe Biden's beyond an absolute reasonable doubt. It's felt inevitable, arguably, since Wednesday. That was the march that we were on. So finally, Saturday morning, we got, I kid you not, somewhere around 3,000 ballots counted in Philadelphia. And that was it. That was the moment that Pennsylvania looked beyond a reasonable doubt. It was enough electoral college votes to be over 270. And every decision desk went ahead and made the call in that moment. Tall and Joe Garofoli teamed up for a six-episode podcast about the life and career of Vice President-elect Kamala Harris. It's called Chronicled, Who is Kamala Harris?, You can hear it wherever you get Fifth Admission. And you can also subscribe to Joe's podcast, It's All Political. 2020 will also be remembered for one of the biggest mass protest movements in American history. The violent death of a black man named George Floyd under the knee of a Minneapolis police officer sparked demonstrations around the world, including many here in the Bay Area. In the first few days of the movement, columnist Otis Taylor Jr., said that these weren't just another series of protests. They were instead a cultural moment. I fully believe that this is something different. I remember going out to Latham Square on Friday night. Protesters were streaming in from side streets. And I believe I tweeted something like, this feels like it could be something big. When I see people in the streets, I always want to ask them when when we're talking is, one, why are you here? 
And two, what are you going to do tomorrow? And what are you going to do the next day? Because when you go home and close your doors, the next time you get up, yeah, maybe you can go outside and, and, and go about your life. But as a black man in America, I feel every time I step outside or every time that anyone who looks like me steps outside, their life potentially could be put in danger just because of the color of their skin. One of the most striking sights at the protests in Oakland was the appearance of Brianna Noble. Images of her riding her horse, Dapper Dan, at protests went viral internationally. She told Fifth and Mission why she did it. She said her husband is from Mexico and didn't quite understand the depth of the issues surrounding George Floyd's killing. So she tried to explain it to him. Um, I sat up for hours that night kind of explaining, you know, um, all of this, this stuff to him and all the history behind this and all the, the different people that we've seen through, I mean, just throughout the, the history of my short little life that I've seen, um, this sort of thing happen to. And I just, I was so angry. Um, I was so, so angry and I just feel so helpless. Like nothing I can do can make a difference. Um, doesn't matter how loud I get, how angry I get, you know, what, what can me as little old Brianna that is really a nobody do in this situation? And um, I, I thought about it and I feel like I'm powerful when I'm on my horse. You know, people, a lot of people will say, oh, well, horses are a commodity and horses are, you know, something that are only for the privileged. But look at how much change I was able to just a, a spark a the conversations I was able to spark with doing this, and I didn't say a word. Chronicle photographer Yolanda M. James went to protests in Oakland and talked to fellow Black people for a project she did with Otis Taylor Jr. It was called Bay Area Black Voices, Why I Protest. We shared some of the protesters' answers on the show, but I want you to hear James talking to Heather Knight about her thinking on the project. I decided to approach Black people Mm -hmm. And it, I mean, my question is not only included, why are you out here protesting? But ask them, how are you doing? Over the last month, we've seen violent images of the death of Armad Arbery. Mm -hmm. We've seen images of Breonna Taylor's apartment. Mm-hmm. where she was shot and killed by Louisville police officers. And I I have been emotionally overwhelmed by these graphic images. Because we're sheltering in place, because I, I live alone, I don't have <laughs> a lot of people here to talk about what I'm processing and how I'm feeling being deprived of human touch at the moment. And that's what I need. And I also need to be out in the streets and, and document what's happening. And so for me, it was therapeutic being out there last week, talking with fellow black people and asking them, how are you, how are you dealing with this? How are you processing all these images? What are you telling your children? That's Chronicle photographer Yolanda M. James. It's worth scrolling back to the June 10th episode and listening to her full answer. 
and you can visit the project at sfchronicle.com slash why I protest. That's one word, why I protest. Unfortunately, it wouldn't be a year in Northern California without wildfires. And this year brought a day none of us will soon forget. It was September 9th when smoke from the fires turned the sky a deep orange, making the whole Bay Area appear like a scene from Blade Runner. It felt like nighttime in the middle of the day, or perhaps the apocalypse. Fifth and Mission producer King Kaufman talked to people on the streets that day in downtown Berkeley. It's 9.30 in the morning. If you just woke up and looked around you right now, what time of day would you say it was? I pretty much would say it definitely looks like 9 o'clock at night. Feeling around like 4 or 5 o'clock in the morning. Yeah, Scott. And what time is it? Uh, I think it's about 9, 9.30. I just uh, sent a text to my stepfather, and he said, just think of it as Mars. Well, I'm not from California, so I feels a little... Let me just tell you, it doesn't usually look like this at yeah, 9.30 in the morning. <laughs> No, I've lived here for five years, but I did wake up this morning and I was like, oh, it's like, it's like home a little. <laughs> Except for Where's home? more red. I'm from Detroit. I don't care about the light of the fire. I'm concerned about my breathing because I have an asthma problem. The Chronicle is one of the first news outlets that ever named a dedicated wildfires reporter. Her name is Lizzie Johnson. And in the past few years, she's been telling amazing stories from the fire lines and the affected communities. She has a book coming out next year called Paradise. It's about the town of that name and what it went through in the deadly campfire of 2017. Just this month, Lizzie told another fire story on Fifth and Mission, To Catch a Fire Setter. She spent more than a year reporting on an arsonist who's now in prison for setting a series of fires in Lake County, including 2016's ruinous Clayton fire. Here's an excerpt. Back in 2015, when suspicious fires first started popping up in Lake County, Mike Thompson was sent there from his post in Humboldt. His job was to figure out why the fires were starting. He suspected arson. But here's the thing. Arson is really hard to prove. And arsonists, or fire setters, as investigators tend to call them, are almost impossible to catch. To build a solid case, you usually have to let the firebug start more fires. Confirm that your hunches are right. Collect enough evidence to convict. But that evidence? It burns up and there are rarely any witnesses. That's why there's only an arrest in about one out of every five arson fires. And it's why there's a conviction in about one out of every hundred. When a serial arsonist is at work, investigators have to build their case before one of the fires blows up into the big one. It's a race against time. And in Lake County in 2015, the race was on. Whenever big wildfires break out, our reporters and photographers rush out into the field to cover them. And then they send Fifth and Mission updates that we publish sometimes several times a day. Here's photographer Carlos Avila Gonzalez calling in from the Armstrong Redwood State Natural Reserve near Guerneville. I had a bit of a frightening moment there when several trees actually fell. And I can't explain how terrifying a moment it is when you hear that first boom and you don't know which way the tree is falling. Um, um, it's also a little bit more terrifying when you see Cal Fire crews who are seasoned and know what they're doing jump to their feet like cats and assume a defensive position, everybody looking up, not knowing where it's going to come down. That's our year-end show. I want to thank all the reporters, editors, and photographers who contributed to Fifth and Mission all year and to our producers, King Kaufman, Erica Carlos, Karen Creighton, and Taya Francesca Price. Thanks to my co-host, Chronicle columnist Heather Knight, our former co-host, Audrey Cooper, and our fill-in host, Dominic Fracasa. 
and thank you especially for listening all year. We'll take tomorrow off, and then we'll be back with a new episode of Fifth and Mission on Monday. Happy New Year.